Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning on this first day of this new year. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to worship you in song. We pray for the special this morning, that it would prepare our hearts for the preaching of your word. Lord, I pray that the message would be able to be delivered without hindrance. But most of all, Lord, that each one of us here would have the ability to surrender our hearts to your word. We ask you to do the work that needs to be done. We're glad that you're a personal God that knows the personal issues in each life here present. And Lord, we ask that the Holy Spirit would have freedom to work in each individual life, that work that you know is best. And Lord, we would not withhold from you that which is your due, that we would worship you by the surrender of our wills and our lives to your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Your blessing, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Second Chronicles. The book of Second Chronicles, chapter 20. And actually, this is a text that I preached from. Uh, praise God, it's not the same sermon. Uh, but I preached from this text in January 1st, uh, the first Sunday in January, 1993. And uh, we had 16 people there at that service, and I don't think any of them ever showed up again. Uh, but, uh, no, I've, I've worked, I don't believe it was quite the sermon there, but uh, uh, that was our first New Year's uh, Sunday in our church's history, and they were all visitors, actually, uh, from another part of Queens that had come to that service. But uh, as I was contemplating on what to preach uh, this morning, uh, this text came back, and, and I will tell you it's a completely different sermon than it was back then. None of you would remember it anyway, because... Uh, let's see, in 1993, Peter was only two years old, and he and Sarah went out to Sunday school, and, uh, uh, and they, uh, they didn't hear the message anyway. But uh, uh, this is probably the strangest battle that was ever fought in Second Chronicles chapter 20. And God puts the stories in the Bible, and one of the reasons we encourage you to come to the Sunday school time at 10.30 is because we go through the stories of the Bible one at a time. He said, but stories are for children. Well, how many of you learned something this morning about Balaam and his donkey from the Sunday school time? Okay, it's for adults too. Uh, the more you know about the Bible the more able you're going to be to understand it. Many things in the scripture are built upon the stories because the stories that are recorded in the Bible, they're not crafted fables to prove a point. They are the real histories of real lives. But God uses those real histories, those real events to help us understand how he wants us to serve him today. And this strange battle... Uh, a strange battle plan actually is the best plan that you can have for your life. Oftentimes, well, let's just ask the question and you don't have to raise your hand or anything, but 
How many of you were faced with a serious dilemma in the past year? I mean some very serious issues, and you just weren't quite sure how to handle it. Now let's take it a step further in the negative. And so you decided to think about it and try to figure out how to solve that problem. And you made a mess. Now don't raise your hands. All right. You see, the Bible says we're to trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding. It says, in all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. The question is, how do you do that? I, I can't tell you how many times people said, well, pastor, didn't God give me common sense? And part of me wants to say, do you really want me to answer that question? Because what you did was really bad. I mean, if we could have written a book on the worst way to approach the problem, you did it. Now we got to fix this thing. And unfortunately, in life, some repairs are not as easy as they are when a pipe bursts or a boiler stops working or water leaks through your roof or any of the other things that just might happen that we have to face. And so let me give you just a little bit of background if you'd allow me to paint the picture here. And I'd like you to see if you could paint this picture in your mind. The king in Second Chronicles chapter 20, the king in Jerusalem, his name was Jehoshaphat. Now, how many of you knew he was just a real person and not just a curse word that people use on occasion? Uh, He was a real person. He lived in the city of Jerusalem. Jehoshaphat was one of the most unusual kings in Israel. He was a man of peace. In fact, he made peace with some people God didn't want him to make peace with. He actually signed a peace treaty with Ahab, king of Israel the wickedest man who ever ruled in Israel. And Jehoshaphat had actually gone to battle with Ahab in the battle that Ahab was killed. And then later on, he went to battle with Moab, with uh, Ahab's son. And now we have in the beginning, we'll just read a few verses here to pick this up. In verse 1 of chapter 20, it came to pass after this also that the children of Moab, now where did they come from? Jehoshaphat had already participated in one battle against them with the king of Israel. And the children of Ammon and other beside the Ammonites came against Jehoshaphat in battle. Now, just to touch on a few things, uh, does anybody know where the city Amman is? It's in Jordan. Do you know why they call it Amman? Because it's the children of Ammon in the Bible still living there. Uh, These people have been battling with each other in the Middle East over the same piece of property as long as there's been people living there. And you say, who's going to bring peace to the Middle East? The Prince of Peace. His name is Jesus Christ. Uh, There will be one that will bring a false peace. Read the book of Daniel, and as we're studying the book of 
Revelation on Thursday nights. We'll get into these things, but it's not going to last long. There will not be peace in the Middle East until the Prince of Peace rules from the city of peace. I'm looking forward to that day. How about you? But they came to Jehoshaphat in battle. Three nations, Moab, Ammon, and then later on we'll find out that the other Ammonites and things that were included in here was known as Edom or the Edomites. It was that entire western portion of the Dead Sea. The nations that lived there had gathered together and they were going to destroy Jerusalem And uh, just so you know that we have verse 3, it says, And Jehoshaphat feared. If, uh, I don't want to be ridiculous this morning, but if we got a letter or a declaration of war from Mexico on the United States, how many of you would be afraid? I don't think anybody would. You say, okay, you really want it that bad? Come on. This was a real threat. Jehoshaphat was really afraid. If the prime minister of China said that, there would be a whole different attitude now, wouldn't there? If Vladimir Putin said, I declare war on the United States, there would be a whole different attitude because there would be something to be afraid of there. Are you with me this morning? There was a real threat from a real force that could actually accomplish what they set out to do. And that was the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And what happens to a city when it is destroyed by enemy forces? A lot of people die. Who's the first on the list? Well, the king, as soon as they find him. I mean, Jehoshaphat had something on the line here. He was afraid. And Jehoshaphat, being a godly king, in spite of some of his missteps before, knew exactly what to do, and he did it. In verse 3, it says, And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord, even out of all the cities of Judah. They came to seek the Lord. And we go on and it gives us the details of his prayer. I want us to skip down to verse 13 if we would. It says, And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. Now, paint the picture here. Jehoshaphat sounds the alarm. The cities in the countryside, Judah was not that very big, that, very, uh, that large of an area. And everyone emptied out of the cities. They brought their families and they all crowded into Jerusalem. Just as they would on Passover or a high holy day. The city of Jerusalem was packed and the temple complex was full. I mean, it was just wall-to-wall people. It was worse than the Rockefeller tree at Christmas time in New York City. I mean, everybody was there, and they had their wives and their families and their little ones. You know, 
Sometimes the little ones make a little noise or disturbing in, in service. Don't get upset about that. Those little ones are important. They're important to God. And I have half a feeling that God's ear was a whole lot more open to the prayers of those little ones saying, Mommy and Daddy are upset, Lord, please help us, than he was to many of the adults. In fact, Jesus, this is not part of the message, he said, except you become, be converted and become as little children, you shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. They were all there. They were praying. They had one prayer. What do we do? We have this army coming against us whom we are not capable of meeting. They want to destroy us. God, what do we do? Now, as Americans, we have never really faced a situation like that. We have probably right now the most capable military in the history of mankind. Should we trust in that? No. We should trust in God. And if we ever stop trusting in God, we'll find out that God is more capable than any military. That's where our faith must be. That's where their faith was. And I love this next verse here because God always gives the answer when His people will seek Him His way. You say, should we go to the temple in Jerusalem and pray? Well, there is no temple in Jerusalem today. It was destroyed in 70 A.D. and has remained so ever since. You see, these pictures are in here to help us understand what we ought to do. You can seek God right where you are. Amen? I would hope that one of the reasons why we're assembled here this morning is because we want to seek God's answer for real problems we face in real life. Could you say amen to that? I mean, that's one of the main reasons our church exists is to give a place where we can come and we can gather together. Our nation has great problems today. The answer is not in Washington, D.C. And if you think the answer is in the Iowa caucuses, oh my, are you mistaken. And if you think they're in the White House, sign up for counseling. You're in big trouble. The answers are just not here. In those places. The answers are here in the church house. And I think I'll be able to prove that from this story today. But these people gathered at the temple because that was where they sought God. It was Solomon who prayed and said, when you're in distress, God, will you answer this people when they will pray to you from this place? This was removed from Solomon many generations. And they came in and they were praying there. And we come down to verse 14. Then upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, 
came the Spirit of the Lord. Now, this last phrase is what arrested my attention here. In the midst of the congregation. Here we have this Levite. Now, the Levites were uh, appointed over the work of the temple. They were the custodians. They had different jobs. The son of Asaph, I'm sorry, the sons of Asaph were the choir. They were the music directors. And here we have this group of people here, all of Judah, thousands upon thousands, crammed into this temple complex, everyone praying, the little children there, some of the babies crying, feeling the pressure and the tension of their mothers or whoever was holding them, trying to say, God, we need an answer to this great dilemma or we're lost. And this man in the middle of the congregation, a Levite, not a priest, one of the singers, God gives him the answer. Now, we could touch on so many things. You say, yeah, I've seen that happen on TVN. You know, you turn it on there and the guy puts his hand on the camera and goes, oh, I got the answer. Don't go there. They did not have something you and I have. They did not have this book. They were living the events that are recorded for us. If you want to know what God has to say, read the scriptures. Don't depend on somebody's premonitions or feelings or any of those things because, let me tell you, you can be influenced in ways that you have no understanding that you're being influenced. Let us make sure that our influence comes from God. And the only way you can know that is if it is written down. But God's word came to this man and he gave him the answer here. And we're going to just read his answer in verses 15 and 16 and 17 and, and uh Let's look here. It says, And he said, this is Jehaziel, Hearken ye, all Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid, nor dismayed by the reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go ye down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz, and ye shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. Ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. Now, how's that for a battle plan? Put your armor on, go out on the field of battle, meet the enemy, and stand still. You know what our technology would say today? It makes you a good target. Uh, that's a good way to get killed. Uh, but that was the word of the Lord. And as we said, they did not have a written word like we do today that we can go and read these stories that are here. But let me ask you a question. Has the battle ever been yours? It's always been the Lord's now, hasn't it? 
I really get nervous when people come in and say, Pastor, what do you think about spiritual warfare? I always get scared about that. Yes, this book right here is the sword of the Spirit. But God has not given it to you to go slashing around the souls of humanity. Read Ephesians chapter 6. When the soldier is fully protected by the armor of God, what is he to do? Praying always with all prayer and supplication. That's how you use the sword of the Spirit. That's how you fight the battles. And God's battle plan for the New Testament is reflected right here in this story. And so, now we're going to find out what Jehoshaphat and Israel are going to do just because you have God's Word doesn't mean you're going to obey it, now does it? I mean, if you were here for Sunday school, Balaam had God's Word, did he not? Did he obey it? No, he went back and asked the second time. Hey, God, did you really mean that? God said, nah, I was just kidding. And Balaam went off and got himself into all kinds of destruction and, and trouble and all of those things he brought upon his own head. Verse 18, And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites, the children of the Kohathites, and the children of the Korahites, stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice on high. So now that they had the answer, we have Jehoshaphat and all of Israel uh, bowing their heads and worshiping the Lord in silence. And this group of Levites lift up their voice on high and praise God for the answer that was given, the victory that was promised. Did they have the victory? Well, yes, actually they did, but they just didn't physically have it at this time and hadn't happened yet. Uh, this is a little thing we call faith. It's believing God's word to the point you act upon it. If you say you believe God's word and then you don't do anything, guess what? That's not faith. Living faith always produces living works in obedience to God's word. And we're going to see in the next verse that they did obey. And verse 20, it says, And they rose early in the morning. <coughs> Excuse me. They rose early in the morning and went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. They went to where they were told to go. Jehoshaphat the king stood and said, Hear me, O Judah and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall ye be established. Believe his prophets, so shall ye prosper. Now this is where I got the title for this morning's message, is Jehoshaphat's counsel to his people as he led them to battle. The strangest battle uh, that I, one of the strangest battles I know of, they were going they were to set themselves in array. They were to put on all of their armor. They were to make sure their swords were sharp, uh, that everything was in a proper place, in a proper way to fight. 
but they weren't going to fight. They were just going to stand there. And so as they went, Jehoshaphat, verse 21, consults with the people. Verse 21, he says, He appointed singers unto the Lord that they should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and to say, Praise the Lord for His mercy endureth forever. So we see the words of the king. Believe ye in the Lord your God so shall ye be established. Believe in his prophets, so shall ye prosper. He said, I'm going to believe the words of the prophet. And he said, let's think about this. How can we best follow the words of the prophet? Well, the opposite of fighting, uh, you can't get too much further than singing, can you? Especially when you're talking about singing church songs, singing praises to God. That's about as far removed from fighting with swords and spears and arrows and all of those weapons as I can think of. I'll tell you what, you're not thinking strategically while you're singing hymns of praise to God if you're singing them right. Because when you sing praise to God, your mind and your soul should be in the singing of those songs. Amen? It should be... 100% concentrating on God. And let me tell you, Hezekiah knew his Bible as well. He even picked the song, Psalm 136. How many of you read through Psalm 136? It's a beautiful song. For his mercy endureth forever is the answer to every sentence in that song. And so they appointed them singers. Why? Because this was an army. Not everybody could sing, all right? Uh, They had some guys that weren't very good at it. And they said, you guys, we'll just let you uh, be the refrain. For his mercy endureth forever. You don't have to sing too well to do that. Uh, And all of the singers, you're going to sing the other parts of God's great work in creation and God's great work in giving us this land. (coughs) And the promises of it. And so as they marched on to the field of battle. Now you got to get the picture here. The army was camped. They had come up to the eastern shore of the Dead Sea. They had actually come from around the Dead Sea on both sides. And gathered their entire army together at En and they were planning on the march from Engedi up to Jerusalem to wipe the land clean. And their armies were all prepared on the field. And they came out. And, of course, word had already reached them that Israel, Judah was on the march, that Jehoshaphat was coming to meet them. So do you think they just sat there in their tents and barbecued their bacon and all of this stuff and got ready for... No. They were prepared. They were standing there in array. And here come the little armies of Judah and Jerusalem against them. And as they see the early morning sun glinting off the shields and the swords, and what's that? These guys are singing. 
They didn't call out the army. They called out the choir. But look what happens here. Verse 22, And when they began to sing and to praise the Lord, and to praise, the Lord set ambushments against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, which were come against Judah, and they were smitten. For the children of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir utterly to slay and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, everyone helped to destroy another. And when Judah came toward the watchtower in the wilderness, they looked into the multitude, and they were dead bodies fallen to the earth, and none escaped. You know, they talk about the haze or the confusion of battle. I've never been in actual battle. I had a choice, join the military or go to Bible college. I went to Bible college, and probably both the military and the Bible college are better off. Amen. Uh, I, I went, followed the direction that God had for my life, but they talk about the confusion in battle. The only problem is there was only one side that was confused. And Moab and Ammon all of a sudden looked at the third partner there, Mount Seir, the Edomites, and said, you guys are the enemy, and started killing their own people. It says none were escaped, so you know what happened, the last two. Thrust, and they got each other, and they fall over, and there's nobody left. God confused the minds of those men so that they fought the wrong battle. All Israel, read the rest of the chapter, all Judah had to do was they went out and gathered the spoils of war. It took them three days just to collect the gold chains and the medals and the trinkets and the jewels and the Uh, all of the things that were there. And so God used this battle to enrich the children of Israel. It was God who set the ambushments, causing the children of Ammon and Moab to attack Mount Seir. And then when they were done, they just continued in their madness until no one was left. And someone says, you really believe it happened that way? Well, that's what the Bible says. I just believe the Bible. He said, is there any precedent for things like... Oh, there's all kinds of precedent for things happening. People lose their minds all the time and do all kinds of crazy things. Now, our battles, I praise God, our battles are not with sword and spear or guns and planes and bombs. But I want you to understand something. The battles you and I fight are no less real. And the consequences of winning and losing those battles are no less great. What's the battle plan? Well, first of all, let's figure out whether there's, whether the, who's the enemy. If you're going to fight, you better find out who the enemy is. Amen. 1 Peter 5.8, most of you know the verse. If you do, say it with me. Be sober, be vigilant, 
Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now, I wish we had time this morning to to, uh, uh, just bring out this whole thing. But a roaring lion, lions only roar a couple of times. They are the laziest of all animals, uh, which disproves evolution completely. Uh, But... Uh, and a lion roars when he wants to scare his prey into the claws of the lioness that does all the killing. The only other time a lion roars is when he's been mortally wounded. It says that a lion that has been wounded, that knows he's going to die, will not suffer so much as a blade of grass to live in his presence. He kills every living thing until he rolls over dead. That's what they say. Uh, The devil has received his wound. His head was bruised on the cross on Resurrection Sunday. He knows his time is short. And he is seeking whom he may devour. And if you want to put yourself on the dinner plate, all you have to do is ignore the word of God. Why do we lose our children to the world? Let me tell you something, folks. That's a battle worth fighting. They say second-generation Christianity is very poor. It ought not be. It doesn't have to be. How many people sit in church services like this week after week, month after month, year after year and never personally trust Jesus Christ as their Savior? Only God knows the answer to that. We're not a church where I walk up and down the aisles and say, Hey, you're a stranger here. Get saved. It doesn't work that way, my friend. You have to choose to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ yourself. No one can make that choice for you. The most difficult thing being a pastor that I know of is watching people make decisions that you know are against the Word of God. Knowing the consequences down the road are going to be massively destructive to them. But you know what? You can't stop people from making wrong decisions. You can just encourage them to make right ones. Unless you realize the severity of the battle, you will never seek the Lord in the ways that he must be sought to be found. God is not hiding from you. Don't misunderstand me. It is not difficult to find God. It is not difficult to be saved. Jesus was the one that said, even a little child, suffer not the little children to come unto me. For such is the kingdom of heaven. What makes it difficult 
is my thought processes. What makes it difficult is my religious efforts. What makes it difficult is my attempts to make God understandable to me. If I want it simple, I, I like what Jehoshaphat said. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall ye be established, or built, founded. Believe in his prophets, so shall ye prosper. By the way, if you want to find a prophet of God, find something that's written down in the Bible. Don't tune into the television or the radio or any of those things. Find out what's written down. And when the battle comes... When the battle comes, get your praise to God in order, and He will win the battle. Do you know what? You cannot praise and worship God while you're doubting your salvation. Can't do it. If you do not have the issue of your own salvation settled, how can you give praise and glory to God? Oh, yeah, I mean, if we put a band up here on the platform and swaying for Jesus and all those things that people do, you could join the crowd. But how can you honestly give true praise to a true God that you don't even know has saved you? You're still battling over whether your salvation is secure. You've got to settle that first. How do you settle your salvation, the issue of your salvation? Very easy. It's the word of God. That if thou, Romans 10, 9 and 10. Thou is the singular second person pronoun. You wonder why all those these and thous are in your Bible? They're there on purpose because the translators wanted to make sure that we understood the subject to whom was being spoken, thee, thou, thy, thine, if it starts with T-H, singular. Ye, you, your, yours, plural. And if you can just remember T and Y, T is for singular, Y is for plural, you'll get it. That if thou, you by yourself, you as an individual shall confess. Oh, I do that every week. No, that's not what it says. There's not one bit of church in Romans 10, 9, and 10. Who do we confess to? You must confess directly to God. And by the way, what does the word confess mean? It means to tell the truth. If you look in history, churches used to write confessions of faith. This is what we believe. I believe the, uh, uh, I believe the main reason people miss salvation is because they don't confess to the Lord. They give them their wish list. Now, Jesus, I know it's not Christmas, but I want to be a better person. I want you to solve these problems. Uh, Lord, I just hope you could save me someday. That's not a confession. That's not salvation. A confession is a statement of truth. 
the confession of that verse, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. That's the confession. Three words. The Lord Jesus. Every time I go through this, someone looks at me cross-eyed. How many of you know what the word the or the means? T-H-E. And, and everybody goes, never thought, the? Look it up in the Oxford English Dictionary. There's about four or five pages of definition. But very simply, it means a unique one. It's talking about a singular, specific item. The best illustration I can give, this is a Bible that I own. Because I own more than one Bible. I'm a preacher. I'm supposed to. Amen? Uh, by the way, they're all the same version. I just have more than one copy. But this is the Bible <clears throat> I'm holding in my hand. Because I'm only holding one. Do you know how many people are willing to confess a Lord Jesus? Everybody. In fact, the Romans had no problem with a Lord Jesus. In fact, when they were told that, well, no, you don't understand. Jesus is above Caesar. Jesus is above Jupiter. Jesus is above all the other gods. They said, no problem. We can move Caesar and Jupiter over and put Jesus in the center. And they said, no, no, you don't understand. You've got to clean house. You've got to go in the pantheon of your gods and throw them all away. And only Jesus can be there. That's when they started killing Christians. You see, it's not Jesus and your church or Jesus and your baptism or Jesus and anything else. It's the Lord Jesus the word Lord, it still means master. Always has meant master. Most of us have a landlord. He owns the building we rent from. And if you happen to own property, uh, just make sure you obey your landlord, the city of New York, or they'll come and take it away from you. It really doesn't belong to you. Let me ask you a, lot, a question. Do you really think your life belongs to you? I used to have a guy who marched around Times Square with a big sandwich board. And on the front it said, I am a fool for Christ. Fool was in great big letters. And people would snicker at him and he just walk, he didn't say much. He'd just walk around and people would read that sandwich board and read the front and say, what kind of crazy man is that? Until they read the back of it. It said, whose fool are you? You see, you've got to give the allegiance of your soul to someone or something. Say, I'm going to keep it for myself. Uh, doesn't work that way. Because there are things that are bigger than you out there. You're either going to purposely give the allegiance of your soul to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
or you will end up serving the God of this world, the world system controlled by the devil with your life. You cannot choose neither. The confession is the Lord. I'm going to give the authority in my life. I'm going to make Jesus my life, Lord. That means he owns the shell. I no longer have the right to do what I want with my body. It is under control of the Lord. That's not a wish so. That's not hopeful thinking. That is a declaration of truth. Does that mean you'll be perfect? Some people say it does. But the Bible says it doesn't. But it means when I fall down and when I fail my Lord, guess who I have to go to? I have to go back to the Lord. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In what direction am I still heading? I'm heading in the direction of the Lord. Though I've fallen down, though I've gotten out of the way, though I've strayed. I come back to him, I confess my sins, I get up and I keep going in that direction. Why? Because it is he that sustains me. It is the Holy Spirit of God that lives within me, that pulls me in that direction. And though my wicked heart will stray, it can only go so far. Because it belongs to him. The last word of that confession is Jesus. Say, how do I confess Jesus, the Jesus? Well, how many of you know what the name Jesus means? It means salvation is of God. You see, it's the Lord, the one who directs, the one who has authority. It is the Savior. Only Jesus died for you on the cross. I am so happy as a Baptist preacher, to be able to tell you salvation is not in the Baptist church. Salvation is in the Savior who died for you. The church comes in afterwards. The church is the context for your Christianity. It's the place where you get encouraged to do right. It's the place where you learn more about the Bible so you can fulfill the picture of Jehoshaphat in the Old Testament Believe ye in the Lord your God, so shall ye be established. Believe his prophets, so shall ye prosper. You see, the battle is real, my friend. The battle is for your soul. It's for the souls of your children. It is for the soul of our society. By the way, you want to see society changed? We don't need to elect another Christian president to change society. Uh, they haven't done a very good job. What we need is for God's people to get serious about living daily for God. You know, it used to be a shame in this country to admit certain things. To do certain deeds 
you had to go to the other side of town. You had to go into the dark alleys where people wouldn't recognize you and wouldn't know who you were. And you would do things to disguise yourself because sin bore a shame. Today, well, Isaiah, I believe, said it, whose glory is their shame. People are proud. They're so proud. They go to music stores and pay money to listen to some guy call them names that no self-respecting person would ever allow someone else to call them. I don't understand that. I mean, when I was a kid, if somebody called you a liar and you didn't say, whoa, wait a minute. You have no right to call me by that name. What have I done to you? I mean, sometimes you had to get things straightened out. Maybe there was a misunderstanding. But if someone just come up and called you that for the sake of calling you that and you didn't defend yourself, people would begin to think that you were that name that they called you. Somebody gave me a Blue Jackets manual. It's a Navy handbook from the 40s. I was reading through it and there's a humorous little story. An officer was walking along a gangway above two seamen below him and one of the seamen was cursing at the other. How many of you know this story? He wrote them both up for discipline. He said, according to Navy rules, you are not allowed to curse your fellow sailor. The only problem was he wasn't objecting. So some of the things you must have been saying, that you were saying about him must have been true, so I'm writing him up too. Hey, there, there used to be this thing called character. There used to be a reality to words that are spoken. No one in their right mind 50 years ago would have said, well, you have your own truth and I have mine. No one can own the truth, my friend. You can choose to ignore it, yes. You can call the truth a lie, be my guest. Talk to Neville Chamberlain. We have peace in our time. How many of you remember that statement from history? He called the truth... Well, actually, he called the lie a truth. Before it was done, a hundred million people were dead. If you count all the losses in World War II in every nation. I'll tell you what. We got to get to the Word of God. You've got to order your praise to God. You can't praise God. I could go on all day and I won't, I promise. You can't praise God if you're doubting your salvation. You can't praise God if you're living in sin personally. You can't bring your praise to God. I think it would be most difficult 
if your children turned their back on the gospel and went into the world. You order your praise to God like Jehoshaphat did. And the Lord will fight the battles. I've had literally hundreds of people over the years come in and say, Pastor, I think I'm possessed with the devil. My first thought is, I don't doubt that, but what do I do? Let me tell you what you do. You hide behind Jesus is what you do. Somebody's put a curse on me. What do I do? You get behind Jesus is what you do. They're playing with my mind at work. Get behind Jesus and he'll have your mind. And if he has it, they can't play with it. People are afraid of many things. And let me tell you, there are many things in this world that you ought to be afraid of. But let that fear, as it did Jehoshaphat and the people of Israel, drive you to seek God. And when you get his word, let me tell you something. You cannot stop Iran from developing nuclear weapons. No one in this room has that ability. All of us collectively couldn't do it. But I'll tell you what we could do. So we could get our praise arranged to God. And God will do something. How many times did the psalmist in Psalm 119, the princes sat against me and spoke against me, said, what did I do? I meditated in my precepts. You say, but pastor, how do you fight the battle when you run away from it? I'm not running away from the battle. I'm running to the only one that can fight the battle and win, and that's God himself. Now, I'll tell you what, as I look back on 2011, I'm praising God for some great things that happened. And I, like last night, I want to forget some things that happened in 2011. I want to press forward to that mark of the prize of the high calling. But the only way I'm going to do that is by getting my praise and worship of God in line. Then he fights the battles. And guess who wins? I do. (laughs) I'm the one that wins because he fights the battles. That's why God put that weird story of Jehoshaphat in the Bible. So you and I can see how God took a real battle with real swords and won the battle. And so you and I can have faith and encouragement to fight the spiritual battles we face the same way. And all God's people said, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in prayer. Lord, if we were honest with each other and with you today, there's not a one of us in this auditorium that isn't fighting battles. Real battles. Battles where all could be lost. Now, Lord, we pray for those that are fighting 
the battle of their soul. That they would drop their arms and run to the Savior. Lord, we pray for those that are fighting battles with sin. Just trying to get by, doing the best we can. Lord, that we would stop. We would get our praise in order to you. Meaning that we have to be obedient to your word. And Lord, let you have the victory. Let you fight the battles. Lord, I pray the Holy Spirit would have freedom to convict each heart and life of the needs that are there. Lord, I pray that your word would have its way. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. The hymn of invitation.